All right. We are continuing our study through the book of Esther this morning. We'll be looking at Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. One of the themes that uh, we've seen so far in this book is uh, the theme of pride. The pride of the king, Ahasuerus, and the pride of Haman. We're going to see more of Haman's pride today. And so before we read the text, I want to ask something as it relates to pride. As you consider your plans that you make or are making, are your plans for the purpose of making your name or God's name great? Are your plans about your kingdom or about God's kingdom? Are they marked by selfishness or are they marked by selflessness? Those are important questions for all of us. No matter what stage of life we are in, those are questions that are important for all of us. We're going to see today that Haman cannot see past himself. He's the center of his own world. He's completely enamored with his own honor. So let's read the text together and then we'll get into it. Go ahead and stand and follow along. I'm going to be reading all of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen, Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, 
let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we, we say to you, your word is truth. We're grateful that you've given it as a gift to us, and we pray that you'd help us in this time, Lord. We really do desire your help, that we would hear from you through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Chapter 5 begins, it says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. Remember in Esther chapter 4, Esther had told Mordecai to have all of the Jews in Susa fast for three days on her behalf. And then after that period of fasting, here we are at the third day, Esther gets right to work. What she said she would do, she did. She puts on the robes and made her way to the throne room. It says there she put on her royal robes. And in the Hebrew, it literally says she dressed in royalty and then approaches the throne. She stood in the inner court, which is that area that in chapter 4 we're told is forbidden for someone to come without being invited by the king. Remember the risk that we saw last week. If she comes and is not accepted, that she will be killed, even as the queen. The king is there sitting on the throne, it says. Now, Esther had to have been extremely nervous. But we're not giving any, given any description of her emotional state, just that she's there. And I want to comment here as we're getting into this. None of what Esther does was mentioned in Mordecai's instructions to Esther. It was Esther alone who planned the parties and invited the king and invited Haman. It was Esther who arranged exactly the right setting to expose the wickedness of Haman. Verse 2, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Again, just as we saw in Esther chapter 2, Esther wins the king's favor when he sees her. She is received by the king as the exception to the rule. It could have gone either way for Esther, right? She has the ability to win favor, but we also know that King Ahasuerus is a volatile man. One commentator writes this, of course, she does not know, cannot know what the outcome will be when the king sees her. She does not know whether the king will be in a generous mood or an irritable mood. She does not know whether she will find favor with him or not. It's true. She didn't know as she's approaching what the king would do. She couldn't know. And yet with courage and conviction, she goes anyway. Remember the words she speaks to Mordecai in chapter 4, if I perish, I perish. We know Esther didn't enter the throne room just for herself. With 
courage she went on behalf of those who had no opportunity or ability to go into the king's presence, all of those who would die. That is selflessness. And just as we looked at two weeks ago at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we know that selflessness is a mark of faithfulness. We see here the king stretches out his scepter to Esther before she enters the throne room. So she can approach him now knowing that there will be no penalty for coming without an invitation. And so she goes to the king. Verse 3, the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, there seems to be more to this than what we read here in the English translation, more of a um, what troubles you from the king. Michael Fox comments that the phrase here in Hebrew always suggests that the person or thing to whom this question is addressed is perturbed. If you compare it to Genesis chapter 2, 17, that says, what troubles you, Hagar? Or Psalm 114, verse 5, what alarmed you, O sea, that you fled? You can imagine that Esther must have been greatly troubled. Troubled for her people and troubled with the thought of coming before the king, not knowing what would happen to her. She must have felt greatly troubled if she risked coming uninvited to the king. And so it seems appropriate that the king is questioning from that perspective. His offer here that he uh, would give her up to half the kingdom, that's probably a, a conventional phrase. We've gotten a good sense of the reputation of King Ahasuerus. It's probably a statement saying you can expect generosity. Ask whatever you wish and you can expect favor and generosity. Verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king, that I have prepared for the king. The party's already prepared, so how can he refuse to come? But if we're honest, it's a little bit anticlimactic in this verse. If you, if you don't know the book of Esther, and maybe all of you have read through it before, you've come prepared and you know what's going to happen, that's wonderful. If you've never read through the book of Esther and you get to verse 4, you're like, wait, what? A, a banquet? Like, get to the point. Your people are about to die, so just, like, get to it. But she doesn't. She invites to a banquet. So you might ask if you are unfamiliar with the book, is she stalling? Is she delaying? Is she panicking here? And the, the answer to that is no. She has a plan. And we know that by the fact that she has already prepared the feast. Verse 5, there's a transition that takes place in the story. There's a new setting, and it is Esther's banquet. The king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So they're drinking wine now after 
the feast after they have eaten. And the king asks again this question, what is troubling you? What, do you? what is your request? Ask anything of me. So he knows that the feast itself was not the request. It was not why she came. Something is troubling the queen. And it continues, verse 7, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now this verse, verse 7 in Hebrew, reads literally like this. Esther answered and said, My petition and my request. There isn't anything equivalent to the is or this is that is placed either at the beginning or the end in English translations of the verse. And so the sense seems to be that Esther begins to answer and then breaks off and doesn't answer. Maybe that is simply to entice the king's curiosity, not necessarily losing confidence. But it's like she's about to state her request, but interrupts herself with another invitation. And the tension in the story, story certainly is raised at this point. Remember, we were talking about in the first couple of chapters, the, the, the celebration of Purim and how every time that the Jewish people celebrate, celebrate Purim, this is acted out. This is a play that's acted out. This is a high, tense part of the story. And she says that this is when she will make her request. Come to another banquet. You and Haman, come and then I will make my request. And notice the confidence that she has in this. If he accepts the invitation, she knows that he will fulfill her request because she's found favor in the king's eyes. That's how she words the question. And the truth is, we ought to give credit to Esther here. She has invited Haman to both of these feasts. I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you enjoy confrontation. Any of you out there? Even if it's true, you're not going to raise your hand, right? You don't want us to know that that's you. I absolutely do not enjoy confrontation. Few people actually enjoy confrontation, and even fewer actually handle confrontation in a godly way. It is a lot easier to talk about people when they're not in the room, right? But it's sinful. It's wrong. Esther could have invited the king to the banquet. She could have won his favor as she did and she could have simply just told him about Haman without Haman being present. She could have done that. But she does the right thing. And let's be honest, if you know the rest of the story, the awesome thing. I mean, it is going to get wild and awesome at this next party, right? But, but she could have done it without Haman being invited. And she does the courageous and right thing to have her adversary present in the midst of this confrontation. Verse 9 continues, 
And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. This is incredible. And he gives us a window again into the heart of Haman. This section occurs immediately after Esther's first banquet. And the verses heighten the tension of the story. Also reinforce what we've seen about Haman already. He is he's egocentric and bent on retaliation and destruction if his fragile ego is provoked. The extreme contrast in his emotions is related to him being honored first at Esther's banquet and then being dishonored here by Mordecai. And it is too much. He leaves the banquet happy and in high spirits, in high spirits, feeling like he's on top of the world, and then he sees Mordecai. It says that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him. Gives him no honor, doesn't stand up or shake before Haman. The word there is used to describe the reaction of someone in the presence of a powerful superior. So Mordecai is saying, you're no powerful superior to me. And refuses to give honor. And Haman is furious. Filled with wrath, it says, against Mordecai. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, it seems out of character that Haman restrained himself, but it is temporary. His restraint doesn't mean that there's a measured internal response here. We're going to see that in the next verses. He goes home, and when he does, we get a glimpse of those who have the greatest influence on Haman, his wife, Zeresh, and his friends. And he gathers his supporters around him to, to give him confidence and to complain. In verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. He gathers people around him to tell them things that they already knew. He speaks about the greatness of his wealth, about his many sons, how the king had made him great, and how the king had lifted him up above his other officials. The things that really matter to Haman are mentioned here in these verses, and ultimately it's himself, how he's honored and lifted up. And then verse 12, he, he lets them know about the honor of the invitations to the queen, queen's feast. Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. You can, you can just feel the pride that's coming from Haman here as he's boasting to his friends and his wife about how important he is. And yet there's Mordecai. Verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me. 
so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He cannot but refer with disdain about the Jew Mordecai. He can't have any satisfaction from those other things. As, as, as great as they supposedly are to him, he can have no satisfaction from those other things because Mordecai dishonoring him means too much to him in comparison. How do you think that Haman's sons felt when he included them in the list of things that failed to satisfy him or that were worth nothing to him in comparison to wanting honor from Mordecai? Just, he's self-centered. And then verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. In case you're wondering, Proverbs 31 was not written in light of Esther 5. 14. This is incredible. This idea, this response by his wife and his friends to Haman's description of Mordecai is shocking because it is absolutely disproportionate to what Mordecai has done. And yet their guidance here plays a small and yet very important role in the entire story of where we're headed. 50 cubits high. A gallows 50 cubits high is ridiculous. It's equivalent to about 75 feet. So that would make the gallows, or if you remember from early in the book, likely a stake, as tall as a seven-story building. Go do that, Haman. Imagine a structure like that standing in Haman's backyard. This pillar of death. In the context of the Bible, the height of 50 cubits is, is probably an exaggeration. Even Solomon's temple, temple is only 30 cubits high. And so maybe Zeresh didn't intend the height to be taken literally. Maybe it's meant uh, that the gallows' towering height should be visible to all who are in Susa. Maybe the author's deliberately putting uh, this exaggerated measurement in Zareth's mouth in order to mock the absurd nature of such a request. Imagine trying to uh, put someone up on top of a uh, seven-story stake. Um, that would be difficult. Um, but Haman, it says, greets this evil plan with what? Delight. It pleased him. This idea from his wife and his friends to build this high tower of death pleased him. And in his haste, it says, he has the gallows built to end this personal feud between himself and Mordecai. This feud that would have been resolved on its own when the edict is fulfilled months later, if he'd just been patient. 
And so we're left with this tension increasing because now while Esther takes time out to prepare another banquet, Haman plans to kill Mordecai. And both of these things are scheduled for the following day. Now, I want to say here, if you don't know the rest of the story, things are about to get really, really fun, really good. There's been a a lot of really hard stuff in these first chapters of Esther. There's some hard coming still in the book, but there's some really exciting stuff coming. But we're stopping here today. So I want to ask, what can we learn about God from this text? The first thing I would say is, again, we see the beauty of God's providence in this book, throughout the book, but particularly here. One commentator notes that the eventual outcome of these feasts was not just a product of Esther's shrewdness. Even with all her shrewdness, the king did not have to extend the scepter, but he did. The king did not have to invite a request, but he did. The king did not have to come to the banquet, but he did. And so while Esther's planning was important, someone else was integral in the king's participation. The author of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 21, verse 1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And that's what we see here. The Lord's providential hand. That's what we see happening throughout this book of Esther. And before we get to how we see the gospel in this chapter, and as we consider the providence I just mentioned, I want to ask you, in light of the reality of Haman's pride and anger in this text, I want to ask you, in what or whom do you take joy? As you consider Haman and these things that were genuine joys, they could have been joys in his life, but are so easily gone because of his pride and how furious he is at this one individual who doesn't give him the honor that he believes he deserves. What or whom do you take joy in? And what or who can kill joy in your life? Consider that sincerely. What do you take joy in? And what or who can kill that joy in your life? What is it that causes you to be angry out of all proportion to the offense? That is a clue that one of our idols is being threatened. When something happens and in our hearts or out of our mouths come anger and fury, that is a That is a clue to where our idols are lying. Our strong emotions, and and sometimes they could be joy, but most often anger, are clues enabling us to read our own hearts better. Our pride is a form of dishonesty because it gives us a false view of our own importance. Pride takes a false joy, a fragile joy 
and self. But we're people who need true and sustained joy. You consider on the last night with the disciples, Jesus talked a lot about joy. As you read through uh, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. One of those verses, John 15, verse 11 says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full joy. Now, I ask you, do you have true joy? What we see with Haman is this, earthly possessions and pleasures don't have the weightiness or worthiness to sustain our joy forever. We need something to provide joy that makes all the other things joyful, a sustaining joy. And that is God. We read in our scripture reading earlier, Psalm 43, and in the midst of that, Psalm 43 verse 4 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And that expression, exceeding joy, is huge. It means the joy or the gladness of my joys. I go to God who is the gladness of my joy or the joy of my joys. The joy that makes all the other joys in my life joyful. The thing that remains joyful even when those other joys become difficult or are challenged. And how do we find that joy? And the answer is through the good news of the gospel. You consider how we see the gospel in today's text. I mentioned earlier in uh, the chapter, Esther's determination is similar to what Christ displayed as he fulfilled the Father's plan. Luke writes in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He determined to journey to Jerusalem, even as he knew what faced him there. It says he set his face to go. And then for the rest of the book of Luke, from, from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, for the rest of the entire book, it's feeding off of that one verse. Everything changes at that moment. Everything then is Jesus going towards his suffering. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that Esther did not enter the throne room just for herself on behalf of all those who had no opportunity or ability to go into the king's presence. And that is the joy of the gospel because that's what Jesus does for us. He went into the throne room for us. Even more, as you consider Esther coming into the presence of the king, not knowing what could happen, and that moment where the king reaches out his scepter, scepter, scepter to her, that moment where all is going to be well, the scepter wasn't held out to Jesus. 
you, you consider that in comparison to the story of redemption in Esther where Esther is, is not killed for approaching the king. You consider that in the story of Abraham and Isaac as Abraham takes his son Isaac up the mountain thinking he's going to have to sacrifice his son. And before he lowers the knife to his son Isaac, there is a ram caught in the thicket. It's the same story that we're seeing here. The knife is stayed from Isaac. He is not killed because he is not a good enough sacrifice to deliver mankind from sins. There's another who is coming that the scepter will not be held to and one that the knife will not be held from. And that's the gospel. That's Jesus. For him, it meant death. He died for those who couldn't plead their own case and brings them safely into the presence of the king. That's the good news of the gospel. The truth is, for all of us, as you consider in light of the story of Esther, any of us who attempted to approach the king, God, on our own, would have been killed because we cannot do enough and we are not enough to be clean and holy to come into his presence. We needed someone to enter the kingdom, enter the king's throne room on our behalf, and that's Jesus. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper remembering his sacrifice. I want to say to you as we prepare for that, nothing speaks more to your significance than God the Father caring enough to be involved in your situation and sending God the Son to lay down His life in your place, making a way for you to be accepted before God. And so if you hear about joy and you think, I couldn't be that joyful, I'm not worthy of that. Or you hear about Jesus' sacrifice and think, well, that's not for me because of all of the things that you have no idea I've done. It's exactly for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not that Jesus died for those who were worthy. He died for all to make us worthy to credit us with cleanness and righteousness and blamelessness, things that we could never have attained on our own. And so as we remember his sacrifice, as you're dismissed to come and get the bread and the cup and go back to your seats, let's remember with true joy, we could not come into his presence apart from his sacrifice. And so it is a joy as we remember his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good and everything you do is good. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us, help us to remember rightly as we, as we consider your body, Jesus, that was broken for us. As we consider your blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, help us. 
Use this time, Lord, to unite our hearts to one another and mostly to unite us to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.